All right. Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you and always fun every year to sing that song and test our lung capacity as we sing the Glorias. Oh, you guys sounded great. Well done. A few of us maybe go to the doctor if you were having trouble, you know, with getting through those. But um, hey, we're so glad that you are with us here at FBC. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors, and we just want to welcome you and say Merry Christmas to you. We're only a week away, uh, and we want to invite you. Yeah, Jordan, come on. Um, and I want to invite you, hey, if you have a Bible, join me uh, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the seats in front of you. If you want to turn to the, again, the New Testament book of Hebrews, uh, if you need to follow along with words on the screen, we'll have that there too for you as well. Um, we're in week three of Advent, this special season on the church calendar every year where we slow down, we reflect on the meaning of Christmas and the coming of Christ, his arrival, and we look forward, of course, to his return, his second coming. Uh, we've had the candle lightings and the readings and the prayer times each week just to prepare our hearts for what God is doing this season. Um, we've had this theme this year called God Made Low. So for Advent, we've had a, a this is week three of four, uh, a sermon series where we're looking at the doctrine of the incarnation, which is simply the fact that Almighty God uh, came to us and was born as a baby, the Lord Jesus, uh, born as a human being, walked among us, God in the flesh, and we're trying to wrap our heads around Almighty God in heaven embracing our humanity and lowliness and all that that means. Recently, Jen Wilkin wrote a book called None Like Him. Jen Wilkin is a fantastic author, Bible teacher. She writes primarily for women, but this book would be fantastic for men, women alike, whoever, to read it. The book is called None Like Him, and the subtitle is 10 Ways God is Different from Us and why that is a good thing. She points to, or she looks at theology proper or the doctrine of God and simply goes through and wants to explore what theologians call God's incommunicable attributes. In other words, the attributes of God, who God is, that uh, make him different from who we are. The ways that God is standing alone, there's none like him. And so she talks through Things like the fact that God is infinite. He is not bound by time or by the limits of creation like we are. And so she'll point to texts like Isaiah chapter 40 that say, God is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weak or weary. He does not get tired. But we do. Right? We need sleep. We need Naps. Actually, John Piper has this great quote where he says, Sleep is a daily reminder from God that you are not God. <laughs> and it's so true. Sleep is such a gift and a reminder. We get sleepy, we need naps. Uh, our our uh, brains have a certain capacity, right? We can only process and comprehend so much information at one time. Um, our bodies not only need sleep, but we need food. We need Panda Express to fuel us and give us energy and strength. But God is limitless. He does not grow tired or weary. Uh, we can actually go to sleep and lay our head on the pillow at night and rest knowing that God doesn't sleep and he stays on the night shift every night. 
That's a whole other sermon series that we need to remember to embrace our limits. It's actually really good and healthy for us to be human-sized and let God be God. We could talk at length about that. So God is infinite. His tank's never running on empty. The book also talks about things like how God is self-existent uh, or his aseity is the fancy word for it. He's self-sufficient, meaning God doesn't depend on anyone or anything else for his existence. Right? God upholds our lives and the universe. He sustains us and everything else. Uh, but God simply exists within himself. He doesn't rely on anything. Uh, Acts 17, 24 and 25 says that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives to us life and breath and everything else. God doesn't need anything. Some of us think that... Uh, God created us because he was lonely, and he needed us to fulfill some unmet desire within his heart. And yet, this doctrine of God's self-existence means, yes, he loves us and desires relationship with us, and yet he doesn't need us. He, within himself, has all that he needs. We could talk about how God is immutable, meaning God doesn't change. We change right? We change for good or for ill. We're different sometimes in the morning than we are at night. We're different sometimes before we have caffeine than we are after we have caffeine. And yet God doesn't change. James, James chapter 1 says, with God, there's no variation or shadow due to change. Malachi chapter 3, God himself says, I, the Lord, do not change. Right? Scripture says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever always constant. We can trust that he's faithful and he is who he is. Again, it pushes back against the way some of us think about God, where we'll say, God, he, uh, like us, changes and used to be like this, but then he evolved or he grew or he learned things or he's in process too, just like us, and he became different than he was. And yet, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the immutability of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant in his perfection, in his character, and in his promises. We don't have to worry that God, we're going to wake up tomorrow and God's going to all of a sudden be different than he's always been. We could go on. God's omnipresent. Really not. God's omniscient. He's all-knowing. We're not. It, it's amazing, really, to look at Scripture and study the doctrine of God and see who God is and embrace all these things that are true and good and beautiful, and yet, sometimes all these truths can create a bit of a disconnect in our hearts or in the way that we relate with God. Here's what I mean by that. We sometimes think God is so other. He's so lofty. He's so different from us. He's so holy, which he is. But then we say, well, what does it even mean then to be in relationship with someone, with a being so fundamentally different than us? Right? Have you ever met someone who's just like so different from yourself, their place in life, their social situation, their experiences and their background are so different from yours that you're like, I don't even know how to talk to this person. Right? That happens. The thing about like if you had to picture um, like your carnivore grandpa who fought in World War II going on a road trip with, like, your friend who's Gen Z, vegan, makes their own hummus, um, he got a liberal arts degree, right? 
no offense to either person there, I'm just saying, picture like those two on a road trip, like what is that relationship like? You know, what, what's the relatability level, the communication? Uh, so, you get what I'm saying? Um, and so, infinitely more so with us and God, right? God is so different. He's so other. How do we relate with him? Can he relate with us? Especially when we think about the greatness of God and our lowliness, and he's lofty. Maybe we say, is he aloof? Is he distant? That sort of thing. And so, with all that in mind, we have this amazing, surprising passage in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, which we just read. It goes like this. <coughs> Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. There's so much to unpack here, and we're going to walk through these verses in our time together, but I want us to realize first that this text, these few verses, really are seen by many as the heart or the thesis of the whole book of Hebrews. Uh, the book of Hebrews is this wonderful exploration and walkthrough of how Jesus and the new covenant or this new way of interacting and being with God is, is so different, it's better, it's greater than the old covenant and all of the Old Testament ways of relating with God. Jesus, the book tells us, is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's now our great high priest. It just goes on and on to say that what we have in Christ is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament has been pointing to. And there's full uh, statements of encouragement then as you read through the book in light of all this to, to stay the course, to not abandon the faith, to celebrate the gospel. Uh, and starting here with this section, we see for a few chapters, the author go on about the fact that Jesus is our high priest. Several times it says he is our great high priest. That's language, of course, from the Old Testament that maybe today we're not as familiar with. Uh, but for the people of Israel, right, there were priests that were responsible for working in the temple, for offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, being mediators, essentially, between God and the people. But among the priests, there was one, the high priest, who had the most responsibility and the most uh, weight, you could say, in their hands. The, the spiritual life of the whole nation, essentially, was placed under their responsibility. And so once a year, maybe you've heard of the Day of Atonement, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest and the high priest alone would enter what was called the Holy of Holies, the, the innermost part of the temple where God was said to dwell. And he would stand before the mercy seat of God and he would offer animal sacrifices seeking God's mercy and forgiveness on behalf of the people. But now notice the passage is saying with Jesus something has shifted, right? What does verse 14 say? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. 
saying, now we have a high priest, and his name is Jesus. Our great high priest, the, the ultimate and final high priest, you could say, is Jesus, our Savior. Now, he is the one who has gone into the very presence of the Father and on behalf of the people offered a sacrifice, but rather than offering animal sacrifices again and again and again, he offers the once-for-all sacrifice of his own body and his shed blood on the cross. This is the heart of the gospel. Amen? Amen. So, but look, I want you to see how the author of Hebrews describes our high priest. Look at verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So it's almost as if the author of Hebrews is anticipating some kind of rebuttal. Right? Read verse 14. Again, we have Jesus, our great high priest, who has ascended into heaven. We have this great and awesome and mighty high priest. His name is Jesus. He's now ascended to heaven in glory, seated at the right hand of the Father. It almost was as if someone would say, well, wait a second. That kind of sounds like he's far away, he's aloof, he's distant. And so the author right away says, but, verse 15, our great high priest, he's not unable to empathize with our weaknesses. It's not as if he's unaware or unsympathetic towards our temptations, our suffering, our human condition. So he's saying, don't conclude that Jesus is somehow distant or far off or aloof or unable to relate to and stand in solidarity with you in your frailty and in your weakness and in your suffering and in your pain. Maybe your translation says, rather than empathize, it uses the word sympathize. He's not unable to sympathize or empathize with our weaknesses. The Greek word is actually, it's a combination of two words, with and suffer. And so he is not unable to suffer with us. In other words, he does feel with us in our weakness. His heart is moved by our pain. He stands in solidarity with our human condition and all the burden that that brings. There's a few things we're going to draw out from this, but first I just want to point to what a rich display this is of the very heart of God. The love of God, the way that God's heart beats for and stands with his people. Jesus looks upon us in our weakness, our temptation, our suffering, and he suffers with us. Back in the 1600s, there's a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin uh, who wrote a book uh, based on this verse, and it was called The Heart of Christ, where he unpacks the great affection and love that Jesus, our Savior, has for you and for his people. And, and as old books often do, it had a really full, lengthy title. I always love sharing these. It's back in the 1600s, this is how it was published. It was, <coughs> again, we just call it The Heart of Christ, but it was called, in full, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. Or a treatise, again, it's all there in the publication, demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his human nature, now in glory, unto his members, under all sorts of infirmities, either of sin or misery. 
I love that. I think we should start publishing books that way, rather than like a three-word, like catchy title, just like, just boom, all in the title there. Um, but you, I love that. You see what he's saying, though? This reminder of Christ in heaven, in glory, and yet his heart, his very heart is stirred with tender affection and love and a gracious disposition towards us, his people, under all sorts of infirmities, sin, misery, or struggles. And notice the connection in the text between Jesus, our high priest, and again, his very incarnation, how Jesus was human. And he knows, therefore, our experience. It says he's tempted in every way, verse 15. He was tempted in every way just as we are. He walked among us. He endured the full human experience and yet was without sin. But so he was tempted, tested, navigated the same pain and difficulties and burdens that so many of us are carrying today. Gavin Ortland put it this way. He's a pastor. He said of Jesus, he knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry. And as we read through these, I'd encourage you to think about your own experience and how many of these you can relate to. He knows what it is to be thirsty, hungry, despised, rejected, scorned, shamed, embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, suffocated, tortured, killed. He knows what it is to be lonely. His friends abandoned him when he needed them most. We, we could add to this that his own family thought he was crazy. He was betrayed by one of his inner circle. And so those burdens and the pain that you bear and that you feel, that many of you feel right now and are coming in with today to church, I think that so much of this Jesus can look at and say, I've been there. He feels what you feel, and yet was without sin. So it's pretty amazing to step back and just chew on that for a minute and let that truth sink into our hearts. God in heaven being able to empathize and feel with us in the human experience, in our lowliness. But as we think about what to do with that, like how do we live in light of that, the author of Hebrews is actually going to give us some help. He's going to give some exhortations in light of this truth. As we think about it, I want you to look at, again, these verses 14 to 16. The heart of it is verse 15. And it comes between, to no one's surprise, verse 14 and verse 16. No surprise yet. But I want you to notice how verse 15 really anchors everything around it, what came before it, what comes after it, I want you to, I'm going to read verse 14, 15 again. I want you to look at the connecting words here and see the, the link. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. So verse 15 starts with the word for or because. 
Meaning, here is the basis or the reason behind what I just said. And what he just said in verse 14 was, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let's do this because Jesus is our great high priest who can empathize with us in our weaknesses. So here's the first encouragement. Hold to the faith firmly. The end of verse 14 has that exhortation. Hold to the faith firmly. Throughout the book of Hebrews, you see that there is this tension in following Jesus. Following Jesus is not always easy. Following Jesus brings, in some settings, persecution, bodily harm, and opposition. Um, in other settings, it's uh, social, uh, being a social outcast or being looked at strangely or excluded or tension within relationships and within families. And you see throughout the book of Hebrews, there's this invitation, reminder, don't give up. Even though it's hard, hold to the faith and embrace the gospel, even amidst temptation and testing. And so here's the encouragement. Jesus is able to empathize with you and what you're feeling. He's felt the weight and the pressure of being cast aside. Earlier in Hebrews chapter 2, it puts it this way. Read it with me, verse 17 and 18. It's highlighted. It says, for this reason... Jesus, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to keep or to help those who are being tempted. Because he himself suffered, in other words, he went through and endured this temptation and testing and trial. He is able to help those of us who are being tempted. So take heart and fix your eyes on Jesus, holding firmly to these gospel truths. It's a timely word for us today, because being a Christian in the first century had its challenges. Being a Christian in 2023, almost 2024, has its challenges as well. There is immense cultural pressure upon believers in the West to abandon the faith. And many are in the process of what's been termed deconstruction, which is what it sounds like, where someone grows up in the church and after being raised in the faith, they deconstruct, kind of tear down what they were taught, abandon the gospel, and try to go to it uh, a new way. Or others will maybe remain in the faith, but will attempt to change the message or become what some call a progressive Christian or a post-evangelical, some kind of new expression of faith that kind of talks about Jesus, but really tosses a lot of biblical truth. Um, and just so happens to comfortably align with, like, the main cultural narratives of the West. And I just want to say, I get the pressure. Like, I understand that it's hard to be at odds with much of the world. Like, it's, it's difficult. Again, in some places it means bodily harm and persecution, here, it's more subtle. It's just like, yeah, it's not fun to be the weirdo in the family that really actually believes what Jesus said. <laughs> it's not always fun to be the weirdo at the Christmas table who actually believes the Bible is true. Okay, that, that comes with it like, you're one of those? Like, what? Like, I'm, mm, mm. Uh, we all feel that, right? It would be a lot easier. Wouldn't it be a lot easier to, if we could just change some of the things the Bible says? I'm not saying it would be good. I'm just saying it would relieve some cultural pressure. If we were to say, you know what? 
yeah, there's no such thing as hell. That's just like an old belief. Just toss that thing. Um, sin isn't that big of a deal. God's not really that bothered by our sin. Um, believe what you want. Do what you want. Sleep with who you want. God just wants you to be happy. We're all mostly good people. All roads lead to the same place. So let's just be open and don't worry about it. I mean, wouldn't it relieve some cultural pressure if we were just be like, yeah, we'd be liked by everybody. <laughs> but in doing so, we would abandon some of the clear teaching of Scripture and the words of Jesus himself. We'd be trading these timeless truths of the gospel and the very teaching of Jesus for some modern, secular way of approaching the world that's, again, got cooked up in the recent half century in the West. I'm not saying we are to be antagonistic or difficult. We are to love our neighbors and love everybody. I'm simply saying, I'm not saying go out of your way to be difficult. I'm just saying as we hold to the truths of Scripture, that's going to bring some level of opposition and offense to the world around us. And there's just, there's just no way around that as we follow Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews says, hold to the faith firmly. For, well, because you have a high priest, Jesus, our Savior, who is able to empathize with you, who suffers with you, who feels the pressure, the pain, and he will give you the strength to endure. So first, hold to the faith firmly. Second encouragement, approach God's throne confidently. You see this again in the text. Again, look at the connecting words. So now verse 15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Then verse 16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Right? The then of verse 16 points back to verse 15, saying, hey, in light of all this, in light of Jesus, our high priest, who can empathize with us in our weakness, let us then, therefore, approach God's grace with confidence and find mercy and grace in our time of need. Approach God's throne confidently. Now, I, we just need to stop here for a second and just realize what a wild and amazing privilege this is to approach the throne of God with confidence. Like, I really want you to like, feel how to uh, an old, if you were, again, a Jew who knew your Old Testament and you read this verse, this is, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy town, wild that this would be possible. Um, Here's what I mean. I want you to think with me about these Old Testament examples when people encounter the presence of God or when people draw near to the throne of God. What is their reaction? It's not confidence. Okay, it's fear. Like Isaiah chapter 6. Remember, Isaiah comes into the throne room of God and sees God seated on his throne. And what's his response? It's like, woe is me, I'm not supposed to be here. He's holy, holy, holy. I'm not, I'm unclean, I shouldn't be here. This is not good, I am undone. Right, that's what happens when you enter the presence 
of God. Or, or think about, um, again, the, the high priest. In, in Leviticus, there's all these um, regulations for how the high priest was supposed to go into the temple and do his job. And in chapter 16, there's very specific instructions for how the high priest is to enter the presence of God. Uh, I'll give you one example. Leviticus 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he's not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark. Or else what? He will die. So tell the high priest, don't just come in here and approach the throne of God whenever you want because if you do it that way, all willy-nilly, he could die. Later, there are some specific regulations about when and how these sacrifices are supposed to be made, what they look like in verse 13. talks about the specifics of how the incense is to be burned and the fire that comes up around the altar and the atonement cover. And it repeats the same line. It says, do it this way so that he will not die. Approaching the throne in the presence of God is a huge deal. And so he's saying, hey, don't come in here all casual about it. Don't come in here throwing paper airplanes and smacking chewing gum and just all loud and making noise however you want. This is serious stuff. In light of that, the Jews wouldn't be thinking, hey, run to the throne of God into his very presence with confidence. And yet that's what Hebrews says, approach your Father in heaven with confidence. What changed? Jesus came. And now, rather than the high priest coming in to offer sacrifices again and again for the mercy and forgiveness of the people, the once and all sacrifice of Jesus on the cross has been given, his blood has been shed, and now we are forgiven and cleansed and covered and now invited to come into the very presence of God, our Father, with confidence. Whoever believes is clothed in the righteousness of Christ and washed and able to draw near to God confidently. Not because God is less holy or not because he's changed, but because now we are cleansed through faith in Christ and called God's own children. Tim Keller has this great quote. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Right? Who would be so bold and confident enough to barge into the throne room of the king or where the king is sleeping and wake him up? Who would do such a thing? Only their child, their son. Now, not that I'm a king, but which of you would be invited to come to my house at 3 a.m. and wake me up for something I need? The right answer, none of you. Okay? Rick, remember that. Please. (laughs) None of you. But Shepard and Zoe can. And they do. Something stirs them in the night, and they're not hesitant to come and wake me up. 
or wake Amber up or, or yell for us. No, as our children, they have confidence and boldness to approach me knowing my dad loves me and he will hear me and he will take care of me. Do you see you have that kind of access to your father in heaven? Draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Verse 16 again, so that you will receive mercy and grace to help you in your time of need. Whatever your time of need looks like, whether it's sin or weakness or weariness or doubt or struggle, it says draw near so that I can help you essentially. That's what God's saying. And we get it so backwards. Sometimes we think I need to clean my mess up and then come see God. Like once I figure this out, then I'll go back to church. Like once I, you know, can come in with my head held high and like clean my life up a little bit, then I'll return to God. But he says, no, in your time of need, draw near, run to him. As the old hymn goes, if you wait until you're better, you'll never come at all. So the invitation is just to draw near to him now. And again, the basis is not on your righteousness or your moral performance or that you've figured it out. It's drawn near to him because of the work of Christ. As you came in these doors, we've talked about this a few times, you notice we have red doors at the front of the church. There's a reason for that. It's an old church tradition that church doors would often be painted red because it would remind people that you enter the church or you enter the family of God, so to speak, through the shed blood of Jesus. And so as you come to church and you walk through those red doors, you're reminded that it is on the basis of the finished work of Christ that I can come and stand in the presence of God. It's his shed blood that declares me righteous and forgiven. And so we're hit with that first thing, and I hope you'll remember that each Sunday that you come here. You'll see those red doors, and you'll remember I'm not coming in here with my resume, my resume or my portfolio or my moral performance, or hey, it's been a good week, and so my head's held pretty high, and so here I come to church. But all of us on our best day or on our worst day need Jesus just the same. And we come into his presence only because we've been covered in the blood of Christ and forgiven. And so if you're here this morning and you're weary and you're tired and you're tempted to stay away, would you just hear that simple invitation from Hebrews? Approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Just draw near to him, cry out to him even now. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your love. And that you didn't leave us dead in our sin under judgment, but you sent your son Jesus to save us, to reconcile us back to relationship with you. Thank you that you are a good father in heaven who loves us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not a high priest who's unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. 
No, you were tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet you were without sin. And so, Lord Jesus, we run to you in our time of need. Thank you for how you've drawn near to us and you invite us to come and rest in your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen.